0: Welcome to the Fat Bird, Ugly Dog podcast. I'm your host, Al Frank, coming to you from central Alberta, Canada. With me today is author and falconer Steve Chindgren. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me, Steve. My pleasure. Today we're going to talk about Steve's hawking history using his book, The Art of Hawking Grouse, to structure our conversation. So, Steve... Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Okay. I have uh, lived in Utah uh, pretty much my whole life. I live in the mountains uh, east of Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm currently flying three Jir Peregrine uh Xander, and he'll be going into his seventh, 18th season, uh, DC, who's going into his uh, 11th season, and uh, Badger, who is going into his 7th season. So these birds are all seasoned grouse hawks. My early days of falconry uh, were basically, you know, I didn't know anything. I had a red-tailed hawk. I tied it up on one leg and had it on a 10-foot chain. I didn't know a thing. I finally uh, got The Art of Falconry by King Frederick. From that book, I learned how to put jesses on my bird properly. And I actually got a bell, but it wasn't really a falconry bell. It was just a bell. And I put it on there. And having the bells on my bird and the jesses uh, made me feel like it was really making progress as a falconer just seeing a bird with jesses on it after just having it tied down by one leg seemed like a big uh, improvement and we didn't have any falconry rules at this time basically you could get any bird you wanted and it was wasn't legal but it wasn't illegal quarry that we flew when i started falconry were pheasants and west of salt lake city there used to be big open grain fields and Alfalfa fields. They grew all kinds of crops out there, you know, tomatoes and uh, sugar beets and corn. And we used to meet every day over at Dale Kissamakis's house. At, and we piled into his little Ford Falcon, and we would drive around uh, and and look out into the fields to spot pheasants. Once someone spotted a pheasant, that person was responsible for keeping his eye on the pheasant while the person who was on deck got out and slipped his falcon. And then we would basically run out there and flush them. And, you know, we were really happy if the birds were up 200 feet.
0: I know from reading the book that bird shows ultimately financed your falconry, supported your family, and led to a long career. I'd like to hear more about that. But before you tell us about the highs and lows of what was to become a very rewarding vocation, Tell us about the work you did prior to starting those bird shows.
1: All right. Uh, I was very troubled and, and depressed wondering how can I ever fly birds every day and still make a living? How can I have the daylight, the days free and be able to go hawking every day and still hold down a job? This perplexed me to the point that I thought, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Of course, I wanted to better myself. So I was taking on jobs that allowed me to have the daylight free. So I'm working like produce hours, going in at two in the morning, getting off at, you know, one in the afternoon and then going hawking. And then I was also going to night school at the university. You know, I'd be out flying my birds. I'd I'd, I'd come to class uh, and and come in in my knee-high rubber boots and covered with mud and wet. And finally, the professor said, what is it you do that brings you to class dressed like this and all wet and muddy? And I says, well, I'm a falconer. I, I'm out hunting my falcons. And he goes, really? He goes, that's fascinating. He goes, so are your birds out in your car? And I go, yes, they are. And he goes, well, would you bring one in and show it to the class? And so I went out and got the falcon and brought it in and He let me do the rest of his class the whole night, just showing my birds and talking about what I did. And something clicked at that point in my life. And I realized, you know, I think I'd be pretty good at sharing my love of birds with people. But how could I do that? And uh, I'd gone to California to go duck hawking with my good friend, Michael Conley, who has now passed away. And he was in San Diego. And at that time in San Diego, there was very good falconry. There was open fields down near the border of Mexico called Browns Field. There was areas called Temecula, and it was, it was just beautiful climate for flying peregrines. It was grassy field with perfect ponds. And While I was down there with him, he wanted to uh, impress me with where he lived. Uh, he took me to my first uh, NBA basketball game. He took me to Big Bear skiing. He took me out on the bay fishing, and he took me to a bird show at the Wild Animal Park. The show was being performed by Steve Martin, who now is still performing bird shows in Florida at Disney. And I watched him do that show, and I saw how much the people enjoyed it and how clever he was with his dialogue and his approach to presenting the show. And I thought to myself, I could do that. And I developed a program that was so popular where I worked, and I began to improve the attendance of the park. And he himself would say, if you take my ideas and use them, that's a compliment to me, is what Steve said. And so I did use a lot of his ideas and copy some of the things that he did.
0: That tells us uh, a lot about how you were introduced or you got the idea to doing bird shows. But I do know that you spent a great deal of time and energy developing one of your bird shows. You eventually were let go from that position. Why don't you go through the details of how that came about? Because I think it was somewhat of a surprise, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, so for 18 years, the management of the park that I worked at was through the Salt Lake City Parks Department, and it was a state-funded organization. But they changed. They went to a private organization running the park. They hired a new board, let a lot of the people there that were there go Almost all the employees left. I was the only one that stayed because I had worked hard and actually applied for permits myself to get these birds. And although I was at a, another facility, the permits were in my name. I had eagles, I had ravens, I had you know all kinds of birds. I created a very successful program. Well, this new board that came in, they weren't familiar with having someone who had a very particular skill. They thought that they could get anybody to come in here. this guy's got all these birds trained. Well, they called the Fish and Wildlife Service. And there was a guy that used to just hate falconers who was in charge of the Fish and Wildlife Service. His name was Terry Gross. He's the one that orchestrated Operation Falcon. And he uh, talked with the director of this facility. And they basically took away my permits. And I didn't know how they could do that. I actually had to go speak with my uh, congressman. They actually sent a representative over to discuss how they could do this to me. But anyway, they said, well, these birds are being held at this facility. And even though the permit is in your name, we are going to transfer all these birds to them. And if you want to start another permit on your own and keep the birds somewhere else, we will let you do that. So they gave me another permit, and I was able to keep a couple of birds. But most of the birds that I'd spent 15 years training for this show were no longer mine. The new management had never given me any warning that they were going to let me go. They had meetings with me and said, what we'd like to do, because you want to take time off to do your falconry, we would like to contract the show to you, and so you can do the show's during the summer season, and then we'll let you have the winter free to do your falconry. And I thought, well, that's a perfect scenario. That's what I thought we were doing, and I thought that I was going into a meeting to sign a contract. And when I went in, they told me that I was fired. And uh, as I came out uh, of the meeting, and I went up to the uh, area where my birds were all at, they had people changing the locks on the building. On the doors, and they told me to go in and collect my stuff. And after 18 years, I was ousted out with nothing.
0: So, if I've got this right, Steve, you were prevented from taking all or at least most of the birds that you had spent 18 years training, working with, and so on. And you had to go about starting a brand new bird show somewhere else.
1: That's true the Tracy Avery where I work, asked the director of the zoo if he would ever hire me to do a bird show at the zoo. And he told them no. And so they were quite convinced that I wouldn't go somewhere else and compete with them. And so when they let me go, I was, I still had a bald eagle and a golden eagle on my permit. And I had one yellow-naped Amazon parrot and that's all I had. I approached Utah's Hogel Zoo in Salt Lake City and talked to the director, Lamar Farnsworth, who had been to my show at the Avery many times and knew what a draw it was, that I was very competent and did a good job and was very dedicated to it. He said that he would love to have me do a show at the zoo. Uh, Some years later, I asked him about, you know, well, they told me that you wouldn't hire me up here. And he says, when when they asked him that question, what he thought they were saying is, would he hire me away from them? And he was answering no to that. And when I was cut loose, he was thrilled to have me be a part of his organization and create a successful program there that would enhance the attendance and and give their visitors uh, a great experience uh, at their facility. We worked out a contract and I began presenting shows up there. And I walked around the zoo. He says, we don't have anywhere to do one here at the zoo. And so I walked around and I found a spot and I said, I could do one right here. I could build a stage right here. and." You know, fly the birds from here and put, you know, release boxes here and here and in the trees and up on the hill. And I think he gave me $2,000 to build the stage. And I built it myself. I worked from daylight till dark every day trying to build the stage, trying to acquire birds, apply for permits. I was able to get some birds through some of the falconry contacts that I had. Uh, back then, there was really no one breeding Harris Hawks. A little harder to come by them when you can't just go buy one. I had some falconer friends that had them, and I was able to borrow some from them and get them on my permit and use them. And then uh, people began to breed them. The the Colsons in Louisiana got some of my first Harris hawks that I used in the show from them. And I was very successful with my birds, and I knew how to work birds and train birds. And so we had very little turnover in our collection. Uh, our birds never got sick. Our birds were always feather perfect. Uh, they were managed and handled under, you know, techniques that have been used for eons of time in managing falconry birds. And uh, we were able to do a real good job with them. And we created a very successful program at the zoo. And we would get, you know, about 140,000 visitors to the show each year. But so we had a huge following. And a lot of the people that had followed me from the previous facility that I worked at, and started coming to see the shows at the zoo. And we did a lot of shows a week. We did shows seven days a week, and we'd have three shows a day, and we'd do extra shows at night. And we pushed the envelope of what you could do as far as free flight birds. And occasionally we'd lose them, but I was, you know, very diligent at recovering them. And I chased birds in airplanes over the Wasatch Mountains. They'd be out sometimes for days, particularly our lanner falcons, because they would catch thermals in the summer. And you get a, a tiercial Lanner falcon and a good thermal, they can get up high really quick and they can really cover the ground. Numerous times these birds would catch thermals and go, and I would continue with the show, but then after the show, I'd go find them. But I'll tell you, having those birds being out for three or four days, being chased by goshawks and redtails and eagles, and, and the ones that survived that, oh, they became my absolute very best birds in the show because they... They needed that. It was almost like a hack. And uh, when they came back from those adventures, uh, and it's amazing that they can go three days like that. It lets me know that how fast I was flying them because even when they've been out like that, even though these were imprints, they were so wild. And after being out for three days that I had a hard time even getting them into the lure. They were so spooky. And, of course, it's quite a a sense of relief when you recover a bird that you've looked for really hard. The most difficult recoveries I've ever had with birds have been from the bird show, not from flying them in falconry because we had the Wasatch Mountains behind us. And if you've ever chased falcons in the mountains, uh, it's really, really difficult. And, of course, in, in these days we didn't have drones or anything like that. We could fly up and have the bird fly out and get it. We just had a lure, and uh, we were on foot, and you'd sometimes climb to the top of a mountain tracking the bird. And the, when you got up there, the bird had flown to the other side of the mountain or flown down into a canyon. And So it was incredibly difficult recoveries. Only one case did I spend the night on the mountain and not recover a bird. It's kind of an interesting story. And this is when cell phones were just coming into being. And, you know, we didn't take our cell phones everywhere with us. I left mine in the car. And I didn't realize I was going to end up on the mountain all night. And of course, my wife got very worried about me. So she called search and rescue, thinking that I might be in trouble up on the mountain. And they contacted other falconers that had the old RB4 receivers. And they got up there and tuned into the transmitter that I was tracking. And the search and rescue was tracking me up the end of the mountain. I was really close to the bird, but it got dark. And the thorn bushes and the steepness and rockiness of the terrain was so terrible I couldn't imagine going down and coming back up through it again. So I was just going to tough it out. And I go, well, you know what? I won't be able to sleep tonight, but it'll be a true test of patience. If you can just sit on a pine tree that's on such a steep slope that it comes out and curves up, the only way you can sit on that slope is to straddle that pine tree and lean back against the cliff. And I sat there all night long. And about four in the morning, I saw these lights Winding through the trees down below, way down below it, looked like a scene out of ET with these people with their lights. And I thought, who the hell is that coming up here? And I thought, you know what? Some of my falconry friends got together and they're coming up here because that's the only way they could find me. Well, they were being led by some of my falconry friends with the telemetry, but it was a search and rescue group. And they'd had a base camp down below. And when they got close enough that I could communicate with them, they had dogs and things with them. I yelled out to them, I'm okay. Go home. There was this kind of silence on the other end. And, and after talking to my wife, when they said, We've made contact with your husband, and he says he's okay, and he's telling us to go home. Well, my wife was pretty upset at that point. I pretty much made a fool of her, and she was uh Threatening these people to go out and look for me, that you know I have two little daughters that love me, and needless to say, I slept on the couch after I got home from that adventure. But anyway, I, I, I the next morning I found myself still sitting on the tree as it got light, and uh, I tracked to one transmitter. The transmitter was just laying on the ground, and I go, oh man! But I had two transmitters on the bird, so I switched to the other one, and I could, and I tracked it up to the very top of the mountain. And I mean, I was so close to it, I swear I could see that bird sitting in every pine tree. And I'm swinging my lure, and it doesn't come in. And then I get closer and closer, and I go, it's got to be here. And I finally found the remains of the liner falcon had been eaten by a golden eagle on the top of the highest peak between the two canyons here in the Wasatch front. And uh, I was thirsty and hungry, and I just gathered up the transmitters and a few feathers from my bird and made my way down the mountain. Went home and it was a very deflated thing. That's the only bird that I lost. I take pride in the fact in my falconry career, I never lost a bird. And even in the early days before telemetry, I lost my favorite passage prairie falcon. And I said, you know, I'm going to find this bird. I knew what where I trapped the bird, and it was on a high steel tower. So I figured that it would be, you know, on a steel tower once it was in the wild again. So I, I went and I made a list. And I, I said, I, may, I wrote one to 100. And I got supplies every morning in my car, and I went out, and I spotted prairie falcons, and I went out and threw a, a pigeon and swung the lure for them. And if it didn't come in, I marked off number one. And then I searched again for another one, and I said, until I spot 100 prairie falcons and try to call them in, I won't give up. When I got to prairie falcon number 14, the prairie came in, and even though it was reluctant to come into a pigeon, I finally was able to secure it and make into it and pick it up. I got my Passage Prairie Falcon back. And even flying BBG through the years with no telemetry, even though she spent nights out, I became very proficient at learning how to find a bird in the wild based on other birds' reactions, listening to birds, seeing a harrier or a bootio when a bird's lost on a kill, stooping at it or flying around it looking at it that would alert me. Uh, magpies and ravens, all these things helped me to find my birds. And I take great pride in that in my falconry career, I've never lost a bird. I have lost birds to predators, and they've been killed. I've lost birds to hitting, being hit by a car and both transmitters being broken. But I never gave up looking for them when I didn't get a signal from the plane. I walked all the power lines to see if the bird had been electrocuted. And then I walked the highways to see if it had been hit. And the one bird that was hit by a car I found along a highway. So it isn't just luck. It's a lot of really hard persistence that has helped me to always be able to find a bird. And uh, to this point in my faculty career, I've never lost a bird.
0: Well, a, a number of those stories are not in the book. So it's really interesting to hear them having read the book and not known about much of what you just told us. But let's return to the book. It begins with three short chapters describing what you call the beginning of a new era, your first hunting experiences with sage grouse, your camp on the Big Sandy. Take us back in time and tell us about your early memories associated with each of those three chapters.
1: When I began hunting sage grouse, I was flying a 52-ounce Falcon. I called BBG. and BBG was extremely proficient at hunting pheasants and ducks. I think I had her six years, six or seven years, and uh, she was so good at what she did that when I heard from other falconers about sage-grouse hawking, people like Steve Baptiste and Dave Jameson, I was sure that my deer falcon could catch these things, and they were saying, oh, these are a lot harder to catch. Jim Weaver went out and they had grouse camps, and there were some articles in the Hawk Chocks uh, talking about hunting sage grouse and how these large grouse were extremely powerful and difficult to catch and I tried to fly my jeer falcon on sage grouse. I was hunting them in December, and so they were winter grouse as well. and she was used to hunting pheasants uh, and anyone that hunts pheasants with a falcon knows that a falcon that's very proficient at hunting pheasants won't waste his time going into cover. After a pheasant, because a pheasant that puts into cover is gone, and a bird that learns that just pitches up into the sky on it and comes back for another flush, they won't waste their time trying to go in on them on the ground. And so, uh, when I flew BBG on these sage grouse, she had only seen pheasants and ducks. She had no idea that when they went on a long chase, that if she followed them, she could catch them, because sage grouse are not good in cover at all. And so, I had no success with her. Because she would hit them and they would just take off flying off out over into the mountains. And she, she would give up on the chases because she realized they're going to make it to cover like a pheasant and they'll be gone. So I couldn't catch these things. and It was just driving me nuts. I knew that she could do it. I was just, I was just determined to catch them. And, and the first beginnings of hunting sage grouse, I didn't have a dog. When the wintertime, they get in pretty big groups and there's snow. You can spot their heads with binoculars, and this is how I hunted them. I drove around all day long looking for them, and when I spotted them, then I would fly the bird on them. I finally caught my first sage grouse with BBG, and I had a jerkin at the time, too, uh, I called Smokey, and he caught a few, but we I didn't catch very many. They were really difficult. I realized, if I'm going to hunt these sage grouse, I really can't hunt out of the quarry, like ducks and pheasants and partridge, because... These quarries are so easy in comparison that they spoil your hawk. And a bird that is spoiled on easier quarry won't chase them. So I decided that I was going to uh, train some birds to catch sage grouse. So I made my first jeer peregrine from semen that I got shipped to me from Vic Hardiswick. And Vic sent me some semen and I inseminated a peregrine falcon, the first peregrine falcon that I ever got, which came from Les Boyd. And uh, that's where I made my very first year peregrine tershell, which was named Jomo. I started hunting uh, on the Deseret Land and Livestock Ranch in Utah, which was a 219,000-acre private ranch that was owned by the Mormon or LDS Church in Utah. And I had a friend who was a falconer who was a biologist on that ranch, Shane Davis. He arranged for me to get a permit to hunt ducks and sage-grouse on this ranch, and I had a permit that I would buy every year, and I would hunt on that ranch.
0: Tell us how you started hunting in Wyoming, given the fact that you lived in Utah.
1: All right, well, I was hunting my birds in Utah, in Park Valley, and on the Deseret Ranch. I also made trips to Idaho to hunt with Ed Pitcher in the big Arco Desert, and so those were my three areas that I was hunting sage-grouse. Anyway, I was flying this peregrine, and I was, uh, as it is with any young bird when you get a bird from a breeding project, but I had a bird that was ready to fly and and was hard penned, and it was uh, July. Uh, Our falconry season opened in September. I was going out to the field to just train the bird to wait on. I was with a friend of mine, Jim Hatchet, and so I'm out in a field flying this bird, serving it pigeons. Peregrine chased the pigeon over a cornfield and disappeared. We're driving over tracking uh, the bird, and I go, I'm getting a really strong signal out, in this, out this way, and Jim looks out the binocular, he goes, well, I think I see your bird on the ground out there, and there's two guys standing by it. When I got out there, there were two uh, gentlemen standing by the bird, and uh, it had caught a mallard on the ground somehow. Well, this is a captive-bred bird that flew off, and you know, I was just thinking to myself, wow, this is going to be a great falcon. But it wasn't season for ducks. And these two guys were undercover fishing game. When I picked up my bird, I left the duck on the ground because I thought we had to leave at Laylaw. Well, they proceeded to tell me once I did that that I had, you know, I'm being charged for taking a duck out of season. But in the long run, the charges were having a dog in the field prior to the hunting season and taking a protected species, a mallard duck, out of season. Well, it was a jury trial, and the instructions of the jury was that if I acted negligent in training a bird in an area where it might catch protected wildlife, they were to find me guilty. They found me not guilty for having the dog in the field, so they dropped that charge, but they did find me guilty of catching a duck out of season. Anyway, I lost my license for a year, which was my hunting license in Utah. They did not take away my falconry license. I could still have my falcons. I just couldn't hunt them in Utah. I saw that there was a meet being held in Wyoming. And I went up there with Jim Hatchett and Ed Pitcher was there. And Ed had a wonderful pointing dog named Chula. And he was kind enough to run Chula for me. And I was able to fly my peregrine prairie calicac on some grouse. And although she came very, very close to catching them, she didn't catch one. And that just spurred me on more to try and get a bird that could catch these things. And so uh, after that time up there, uh, I decided when I lost my license that I would start hunting up there all the time. So I got this little trailer and I parked it on Marvin Applequist's property down on the Big Sandy River. And that's when the camp on the Big Sandy began and I had falconers come from all over the country to stay with me, and we camped camp in tents, and, and I developed a, a group of people that basically met there every year for grouse camp, and it got to be a, a lot of friends from California came and stayed with me and hawked grouse, and it was a beautiful camp right on the river, and uh, I, of course, at this time I had to get hunting dogs and I got my first pointer and the dog was already made it was a it was great I flew over that dog and I've had pointers ever since we camped on the river for 14 years and I was very serious about falconry at that time I I would come home on the weekends and the reason I was able to get the winters off is I I did the bird shows all summer long I created a comp time I'd work 7 days a week in the summer and the winter time I could only go into work two days a week and then let me have five days off. So I'd be up there for five days, uh, hawking and then drive home, which is a three hour drive from my camp back to salt Lake. And I'd work for the weekend and then head up there again. And, uh, I'd hawk from September to the end of February and camp in this trailer. And the trailer was not, I didn't have a heater in it. So it, it gets very, very cold up there. So, I had the dogs in the trailer with me and the birds, and <laughs> we had some pretty cold nights. And But uh, I figured, well, you know, our the pioneers and the people that didn't have any luxury or electricity or anything, they did it. So I figured I could do it, and I became a real expert at sponge bathing. And, of course, I did have propane. It could heat uh, water, and I could cook. And I had a, a lantern, and I had a propane heater that I could use in the trailer, but it had all kinds of warnings on it not to use it in a confined area. So whenever I ran that heater, I had all the windows open. And uh, and then when I shut the heater off, I would close the windows and get into my sleeping bag for the night. But the camp on the Big Sandy went for 14 years. And it was while I was on the Big Sandy that I was asked to go fly a bird for some uh, uh, at a uh, fly fishing lodge uh, for some clients of the lodge. Uh, that wanted to see uh, falconry. And so I went up there. Actually, I was able to invite them to Wyoming to come up and camp with me. These guys had some money. They were successful businessmen. And they flew me to this lodge in a Learjet. Sitting around the campfire, they said, you know, if you can find a place up here, we'll help you buy it. When I saw that old log cabin out there at the end of the road that I'd driven by Hawking many times, and I saw it for sale, I got right on it. One of them jumped in with me, and we went 50% partners on it, and we bought it, and that's how the house of grouse came to be.
0: So, question for you. Without that mallard hunted out of season, do you think you would ever have started hawking in Wyoming?
1: I would suspect I would have because I'd collected articles about the best places to hunt sage grouse and at a field and stream, and it described the areas that I, I went to. And I think that I would have, uh, I think it would have eventually would have happened. But being that I couldn't hunt in Utah, you know, uh, my, my wife said to me, they didn't penalize you. They penalized me because <laughs> I was gone after that. So, uh, I think it, it, it expedited the journey to Wyoming, having that license being gone. And, and the fact that I wanted to hunt sage grouse and couldn't do it in Utah.
0: Yeah, okay, that that explains it and is pretty much what I would have expected you to say. So now, you know, your book is as much about sage-grouse as it is about falconry. Let's talk about sage-grouse themselves, and I'm wondering whether or not you would mind comparing the sage-grouse to other other game bird species once you've given us a little bit of information on their, their basic biology.
1: Uh, sage grouse are North America's largest grouse, and they occupy the high deserts of western North America. Uh, they they live in the sage high sage deserts. The hens are literally half the size of the males, which are affectionately called boomers. Uh, they're lek species, which means that the males congregate on a specific piece of ground in the spring to do their courtship, and uh, these leks can have anywhere from five birds on them to 300 depending on the uh, population of the the grouse the sage grouse is a very fascinating bird first of all they live in pristine wilderness the sage grouse feed pretty much exclusively on sagebrush on the leaves of the sage plant and they have a very complex digestive system that allows them to digest this these leaves there i mean if you take a sage leaf and put it in your mouth and try and chew it you can't do it it's Uh, But the sage-grouse have have adapted to living on this harsh land. And you take people out there that are familiar with other types of upland game, and they would think, well, nothing can live out here. No game bird could live in this habitat. But the sage-grouse do live in it, and they thrive. And they actually thrive in the winter. In the spring, the chicks hatch about the first of June. And the chicks are completely reliant on uh, being kept warm by the mom, and that's it. Everything else they have to fend for themselves. They eat insects and forbs. So when you have moisture at the right time in the desert when the chicks hatch, you'll have good chick survival. Predation on the brood is common. There's a number of things that that prey on sage-grouse in the wild. Uh, A lot of the sage-grouse will take their chicks to areas where they're, uh, to like alfalfa fields where there's more moisture, particularly in times when there's drought. And so the hens will move there because naturally they've got irrigation and there's water and there's uh, alfalfa and there's insects. Uh, in those situations in there, predators tend to gather around that. You have, you know, fox and badgers. Aerial predators, probably northern harriers, are the worst on young sage when they're very small. The chicks grow quickly. Sometimes hens that have lost their brood will join in with the other hens that have a brood and they'll have foster Parents, you might say. Cockbirds have nothing to do with raising the brood. Uh, once the, the breeding is done on the lex, so they disperse, and the cockbirds all stay together. So the, the hens have uh, you know equal numbers of males and females in the clutch, but generally males in the clutch don't survive. The reason for that is they're much larger, and they're very uh, awkward, and so if there is any predation on the brood, the males are the most likely to be caught. This is to the advantage of the sage grouse because on the lek, sage grouse you may have a hundred grouse on the lek strutting. Only two, maybe one or two of the grouse on the lek, according to biologists, do the all the breeding. And the competition for this right to be the ringmaster of the of the lek and and have all the hens to breed, uh, and the hens will gather on a spot on the lek. I mean, they'll group into a little spot on the lek every year, the same spot. And they call this the breeding spot. And the and the cockbirds will defend the right to be in that breeding spot to breed with all the hens. And the competition is fierce.
0: So that's interesting, uh, the distribution or the relative distribution of males to females on the lek. Do you have, a, have an idea of what that distribution is? The reason I ask is because sage-grouse are at their northern limit in Canada and the only places that they're found are southeastern Alberta and southwestern Saskatchewan. And the ratio that they report on these lek counts is one male to every two females. Now, that might be because of the relatively low abundance, but your suggestion about counting only on leks relative to winter counts does make some sense.
1: I've been looking at sage grouse my entire life. And I I guarantee you, I've seen more sage-grouse in the wild than any other living human being. I see these huge flocks of hens in the winter. And the only time there's a male with those huge flocks is if it's an immature male. The cockbirds stay to themselves. And so the ratio used to be three to one. But I think that in times when when grouse populations are low like they are right now, and they're doing their surveys on just the cockbirds on the lek, they don't know how many hens there are because it's impossible to count the hens because they come and go, and come, and go, and they don't stay and display on the lek. So getting an accurate number of hens, I think, can only be determined by seeing the winter flocks, because I see winter flocks of hens that are like over a 1,000 birds, and you never see cockbirds in those numbers. The largest group of cockbirds, when the population is high, is sometimes as many as a 100 birds. And I think there are times when cockbirds are low, that the hens still may be in a good population. And so it's really difficult to determine the actual population of the grouse because you have they're judging it usually on the number of cockbirds because that's the only thing they can count.
0: I took us a little off of the topic of sage-grouse biology. Let's pick that up again starting after the breeding season.
1: As winter approaches, the hens get together and they begin to form flocks. In the area that I hunt, we only have 60 days of frost-free weather, and that is July and August. Every other month of the year in Wyoming where I hunt, it freezes. And so during July and August, the grouse become entirely dependent upon water sources. So you'll find them along drainages. The drainages uh, that come out of the Wind River Mountains, the Wyoming Range, the Uinta Range, this Green River Basin provides a perfect place for the sage grouse because there's a lot of water in the forms of streams that flow from these mountain sources. They have to get those chicks to water. And when they hatch their chicks, the further the hen has to move them to get them to an area where they have moisture, the higher the mortality. And so water is essential to their survival. All you have to do to find sage grouse in the fall is go where there's a, a stream or a river, a pond. There's lots of flowing wells in the desert. Some of them have been enhanced by the ranchers to create ponds for their livestock, which helps all of the wildlife. I know a lot of people are just terribly opposed to livestock grazing, particularly in Idaho where it seems like they've overgrazed the hell out of it up there. And The BLM has done a pretty good job, I would say, in Wyoming at managing the number of cows per acre. The fact that ranchers put in all these water sources all over the desert Improves conditions for not only sage-grouse, but all wildlife. So the grouse rely on the water. So if you're hunting them with falcons, you're going to go find an area where you're near water. You want to hunt within you know, two miles of the water. And uh, run your dogs in those areas, and you'll find grouse. But when snow comes to the desert, it completely changes everything. Grouse have traditional wintering areas that are as traditional to them as the leks themselves and the leks uh, you know have gone there's leks that in Wyoming that have been active for as long as they've been keeping records on it and, and and to know how far back those leks go you go and study the look at the ground on the leks and you find arrowheads where indians were hunting these birds on this same ground long before white men even came into the area so they they're very traditional and they're very loyal to their leks occasionally you know leks will disappear and reappear but the wintering grounds are pretty much like a giant lek, but they'll be home to thousands of birds. And they'll come to these areas and congregate in huge flocks for safety.
0: Okay, that's a really nice description of the sage-grouse as a species. Now, to provide some perspective to those international listeners who are more familiar with the red grouse, can you compare and contrast the two species Maybe talk a little bit about the landscapes that they inhabit and their relative huntability.
1: I can. I I can only uh, tell you what I know from my one experience when I went to visit Jeff Pollard, Roger Upton, and Stephen Frank and spent uh, a couple weeks hawking red grouse with them in Scotland. Uh, Scotland is a wonderful, wonderful place. Of course, to hunt red grouse, it, it requires that you pay a fee to go on the moors unless you're... You own your own moors, which in the case of Jeff Pollard and Stephen Frank, they had their own moors. But to most falconers in in Europe, they have to rent the moors and uh, they have keepers that manage the moors that uh, that you know control fox and predators and things uh, so that they can keep a good number of red grouse on the moors. Red grouse are, are in heather, and heather is somewhat similar to sagebrush, Of course, it's beautiful purple flower. Uh, all grouse are incredible quarry for long wings, uh, and better quarry than I, because they hold the dogs, they flush cleanly. The the thing i say, the difference between red grouse hawking and sage grouse hawking, is red grouse hawking, they load the birds onto a cage, they go onto a moor's, they spend the day on the moor's walking. I tell you, I had a lot of admiration for the guys that hunted red grouse, because they really worked at it. Even into their later years in falconry, they got out there and and walk the moors, and, and it's just a beautiful way to hunt. Uh, the one thing I, I I love about that is that you're hunting on foot. With the sage grouse, the area is so large where we hunt that we run the dogs from the car, and because uh, you just if you take off walking uh, with your dogs, you'd be so many miles away from the car that if you got a tail chase or something, you could be in a, a situation where you're uh, it could be life threatening. So we, we most falconers, uh, there are exceptions where we have some areas where we know we can walk with the birds and we know we'll get a point and fly. We do that occasionally, but the majority of the time, we run the pointers from the car. And a, and I use English pointers. Generally, I like a dog that ranges about 1,000 feet out to each side of the, the truck. And they do this back and forth across the front of the truck. And uh, they, a good English pointer can really cover the ground. Watching a good fit pointer run, some people go this is more impressive than the falcons. To see these superb, muscular dogs working to find the grouse, and uh, I've always had uh, great dogs because what makes a great dog is giving it opportunity to hunt, and uh, that's the problem. A lot of people don't give their birds and their dogs enough opportunity. Generally, I, I always get my dogs as puppies. I figure it usually takes me till their third year to really uh, be successful hunting over them. I've had dogs that have developed quicker because I've had to develop them quicker, which I don't like to do because I had maybe a dog that died that was my main dog, and the puppy is only two, and so i got to make him do it because I don't have any other choice. You can't find grouse without a dog.
0: That gives us a really nice uh, comparison of red grouse to sage grouse and the landscapes that the red grouse inhabit. Can you do the same thing with sharp-tailed grouse, which will be more familiar to U.S. and Canadian falconers? Uh,
1: the sharp-tailed grouse is just an amazing uh, grouse. Uh, uh, they often occur in the same areas where prairie chickens occur. We have two types of sharp-tailed grouse in North America. We have the Colombian sharp-tailed grouse, which is much smaller than the greater sharp-tailed grouse, which is uh, uh, more common, and it's the grouse that uh, most people hunt. Although there are people here, I have a good friend, Jeff Broadbent, who has uh, been very successful at hunting uh, Colombian sharptail, which are a challenging bird to hunt. They don't hold to a dog nearly as well as the sage grouse. Uh, even though they're in more cover, they're in a different habitat. And a lot of times, sharptail grouse are associated with agriculture. Uh, and so you find that you're a lot of times you're hunting them on private land. Uh, whereas sage-grouse, you're on public land. You don't need any permission. And if somebody owns land, they use it for cattle. They use it for a lot of different things, which means they are going to be fences. There's more likely a chance there's going to be poles and wires. And these are things that are very detrimental. If, if you're a falconer and you've ever had a bird hit a fence or hit a wire or get electrocuted on a pole, you know how troublesome these obstacles are. With sage-grouse, you don't have those obstacles. You don't have fences. You don't have anything except for the sage grouse. The, the biggest enemy uh, you have out there would be the golden eagles, and uh, that's about the only way you'll have your bird killed uh, hunting sage grouse. There have been a few people whose birds have hit the grouse so hard, even female deer falcons that they've killed themselves. So, but getting back to the sharptails, sharptail grouse, they're incredible, and they fly great, uh, but... A lot of times you got to really have them in the open because they're they're quick to cover, and they'll put into the cover and they're good in cover they're much better in cover than a sage grouse. they're not as good as a pheasant, but they're better better than a sage grouse and I've had birds catch them in the cover, but what I would say about sharp tail grouse, a lot of falconers who who fly them are going to disagree with this, but I've seen it they're not as fast as sage grouse; they're smaller, and they're much easier to catch. Same with prairie chickens. If you have a good sage-grouse hawk catching grouse late in November, you know, I've gone to Natha meets and I'll, I'll take my birds and I'll flush a prairie chicken under them and they'll think, my God, it's a baby grouse. And they just go nuts for them. And I had, I've had i had no trouble catching them with my sage-grouse hawks. But they're all difficult and beautiful, worthy quarries. Falconry is all difficult. And I love all the native grouse. But the reason I prefer the sage-grouse over these other grouse With some of these other grouse, sometimes people will just sit and wait for them to see them fly into a field to eat, and that's how they'll hunt them. Where I like looking for my quarry with my dogs, we have no idea where the quarry is. We wire up the birds, we put the dog out, and it's all based on finding a point if we hunt. And if you and this is just such a wonderful thing, but it's another commitment, it's a huge commitment. Training the dogs is more work and more difficult. Than training the falcons. And so it's a whole other level of commitment to someone who just has a falconry bird that they say go and hunt ducks, or they can go out and spot prairie chickens, or they can spot sharp tailed grouse in a field and hunt them. Because uh, people do get really good at knowing the habits of the prairie chickens and the sharp tails, and they're able to find them without dogs. And that's one thing you can't do with sage grouse. You've got to have, I mean, occasionally you run into them, but you can't do it consistently. you have to have good dogs. I'm spoiled. I love the pristine desert of the wide open sage plains where I seldom ever see another human when I'm hunting. It's free of fences, free of poles. And, uh, you know, when, with hunting sharptail grouse, uh, they're a very worthy quarry. Uh, the Colombian sharptails are even quicker to cover than the graders and if you don't have real open ground if they have one bush they'll you bird can be up at a really nice pitch and those birds will bail out on you every time which we don't get too often with sage grouse with sage grouse the only time a bird will bail out on them is if the the falcon is out of position if the bird is out of position the grouse can calculate the speed and approach of the falcon and when they see that a falcon is overtaking them, obviously they'll, they'll, they'll land on the ground and take their chances of the falcon making a swipe on them and fly in the other direction. But when the falcon is vertical and coming down from a high pitch, the grouse can't calculate its approach and they get a nice clean flight.
0: That gives us a very nice comparison between hunting sharp tailed grouse compared to sage grouse. Now, in your book, you, you have an entire chapter on the Green River Basin of Wyoming. And you point out that it's a very important drainage system for, for the sage-grouse. Can you give us an understanding of what the basin is and the role that it plays in the life history of the species? Uh,
1: the Green River Basin is situated in southern, uh, southern Wyoming. It's surrounded by three mountain ranges, the Wind River Mountains, the Wyoming Range, and the Uinta Mountains in Utah. Uh, these drainages uh, all drain into the Green River Basin, and one of the more famous rivers in the area uh, originates in the Wind River Mountains, and that is the Green River. The Green River flows uh, to the Colorado, then on to California. The Green River was known to the Indians as G and that was the River of the Prairie Chickens, and that was reference to sage-grouse. Today, there's still a wildlife refuge in the area on the Green River that's called Siskadee National Wildlife Refuge from the Indian name for the sage-grouse. The area is uh, a high desert. It's over 6,000 feet, and and some areas 7,000 feet. Uh, The location of the House of Grouse is at 6,700 feet. So it's the same elevation as Jackson Hole, Wyoming. These drainages from these mountains provide a stable water source for all wildlife. So it's a very rich area with mule deer, the largest numbers of pronghorn antelope anywhere in their range. The The history of the land is incredible with the Oregon Trail coming across over the South Pass and down through uh, Wyoming uh, on into Utah. And many of the early immigrants crossing this land Uh, suffered great hardships and even lost their lives. Many of the areas that we hawk are right on the Oregon Trail and we actually see grave sites from those people who perished on this very difficult journey that they made when they were settling uh, this nation. So it has a lot of history. Uh, It's uh, pretty well pristine. Uh, The threat to the habitat is development. There's been some huge gas fields put in up there. One in particular, the Jonas Field up near Pinedale, which is an area that I used to do a lot of hawking in. And in fact, it was my main hawking area. I called it the White Rainbow Wintering Grounds. It was the first place that I actually saw groups of thousands of grouse wintering. And like I said earlier, wintering grounds are very specific to sage grouse. And there is some fluctuation in the wintering grounds based on how much snow there is and the grouse being forced to find other areas to get feed if the wintering grounds get too much snow on them. But on a normal winter, when they don't, they prefer to be in these same spots every winter in huge numbers. Roads are a real threat to them because some of the roads that were put in Wyoming uh, you 30, 40 years ago, there was very little traffic on them. But with increased oil and gas development and with increases in populations with people traveling and tourism, all of these things create a higher traffic flow on these roads. Sage grouse used to have lex in many areas that were near these roads. But sage grouse are such a sensitive species that they won't tolerate trucks constantly going by. So when a road is put in, You're not only destroying the habitat that the road is, which if you look at how far these roads go and how much habitat they take out, it's unbelievable. You better figure on about a mile on each side of the road is being disturbed for sage-grouse when they put in a road. Climate change? Well, I will just let you know, drought is extremely hard on wildlife, and it's particularly hard on sage-grouse. In times of extended years of drought, we see low, low populations of grouse. In the 30s, we had... Times when the, it was so dry that the sage grouse, according to all of the, they call them game wardens back then, all the game wardens in that time made statements uh, saying that sage hens are doomed to extinction because they can't, can't do well when there's no water. If we have adequate water and timing on moisture with the chicks, sage grouse will thrive in these areas and there's no reason for them not to continue to thrive. And the biologists and the fishing game realize this. They realize that hunting is not a threat to the grouse, and the the revenues that they get from hunters' dollars help to provide uh, research and do things to provide water sources and to do all kinds of things to improve the conditions for sage grouse. So Wyoming Game and Fish understands this. So I think the future of hunting sage grouse in Wyoming will be good. I don't think that they'll close it. The only way that they would is if you know you groups of individuals uh, grow with support. And they petition the bird to be listed as an endangered species because in some areas, and what's creating them to become an endangered species? Development in many areas it's just agriculture and taking out, you know, tons and tons of uh, ground for growing crops and for running cattle and spraying sagebrush and putting in crested wheat and all of these things. Uh, you destroy the habitat, you destroy the species. And so, while, luckily, Wyoming still has great habitat.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's really great that you pointed out that the loss of habitat is due to roads themselves, but it's also along buffers on each side of those roads, so indirect habitat loss. Now, turning our attention to finding sage-grouse, as with any other upland game bird, you got to find them before you can hunt them. So tell us what you've learned about scouting for and locating good numbers of birds to to fly. I'm particularly interested in any landscape features that draw your focus as well as places that you you would say you seldom find them.
1: Okay. When looking for sage grouse, you you have to understand uh, and learn the type of uh, terrain that they like to be in they they like uh they like sage that's no more than six to eight inches high because they like to be able to feed on it without jumping they also like to be able to raise their heads and see any approaching danger they they if they're in hilly areas they generally would be on the ridges where they can have a good view but they prefer to be in flat areas and and a lot of times they prefer to be in in flat areas that are relatively short sage like only four or five inches high. The black sage, it's just, you wonder how they could even, you know, you think they'd be easy to see, but when they crouch at that, they blend in so well. They only go to tall sage in the heat of the summer for shade. They prefer to drink in areas they can walk to out of flat land and drink. They do not like to go into canyons or riparian areas if there's much of a drop in elevation, because in these areas, they can be uh, ambushed easily by predators. So the sage-grouse like to have a lookout when they're drinking, and they go to the water first thing in the morning. By the time the sun's up, they'll all be gone. You can always tell at a water source, especially if it's a pond, if sage-grouse have been there, you'll see a molted feather, or you'll see a track in the dirt. One of the things I really enjoy is in the fall, when we get adequate moisture, we get puddles in the road. And if there's puddles in the road, you can drive around, and you can see if grouse have come to them. If they've come to them, there'll be tracks. Another thing you can do by walking the sage in areas to determine if there's grouse there, walk, take a good long walk and see how many droppings you see. Sage grouse droppings are easily to identify. You have the black secal droppings, which look like a glob of tar, and then you have the the regular pellets that look more like a normal bird pellet. They're oblong shaped, they're yellow, and they're in a pile usually where the bird roosts. And so you can determine the number of grouse using an area by just walking the land and looking at the droppings on the ground. And if you've got good usage in a lot of birds in those areas and you know it's frequented by sage there will be droppings. Those are the areas you want to run your dogs in. Interesting side note that the Indians used to take the droppings from the sage because once they've been out there and they've dried, they burn like an incense. And they would use them to keep their teepees fresh. Then we burn them at the House of Grouse. And in raising money to make reflectors for fences, Uh, I uh, collected sage-grouse droppings and put three or four in a package, and we would sell them at the zoo where I did my bird show to raise money to buy the reflectors. We called it "poopery of Nature. It's a very delightful smell that they give off if you can get past the idea that you're burning a turd.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, Very good way to take something that is a very cheap natural resource and turn it into a fundraiser. That was good thinking.
1: So we raised a lot of money, and I did tons and tons of volunteer work marking fences. But you know, I don't think marking fences is the answer. I think it w- the, really the answer is developing a way where we can control the movements of cattle on public ground with something other than barbed wire. But uh, go on about finding sage grouse. Uh, the best time to find them is early in the morning because early in the morning they're even, they're a little closer to the water sources. And of course, when we're hunting in the fall, the temperature in the mornings is very cold, and so it's a good time to fly the birds around 9 or 10 o'clock, the air gets warmer. Birds tend to want to try and soar. The eagles soar. And if you get a long tail chase at that time of the day with a bird, your chances of having it killed by an eagle are much, much higher. And uh, uh, I I prefer to fly my birds where they power into the sky on their own, you know, without soaring. And so I like the air to be as cold as possible because, of course, cold air is dense air. And falcons can climb faster in cold air than they can warm air, unless they're in a thermal. And so we hunt very early in the morning. We go out uh, in the dark and basically get to the areas we're going to hunt, uh, knowing that the birds are going to water sources and that they will be near the water sources early in the morning. Often early in the morning, they're right almost on the water sources. You know. But you, you, if you try to hunt them when they're drinking at a pond, it seldom works out. Flying grouse that you can see, I found to be very difficult because uh, un- in- inevitably, when you can see them, they're so spooky that one goes, and uh, it-, it might be, for- be, it probably will be before your bird reaches pitch, and so the flight will be ruined. So I seldom, if ever, I look at them when they're on the water holes early in the morning and just watch them and enjoy seeing them, but I don't hunt them on the water holes. People that don't have dogs, though, they don't have any choice; they will try to hunt them. Uh, but uh, you know, I rely on my good pointers to get me a point. Yeah, finding wintering areas is another story. So finding grouse in the fall is all relevant to water. Finding grouse in the winter has no relevance to water, for the grouse are set free. They don't need to be near water sources. They can go anywhere they want. And we're talking in thousands of acres of sagebrush. So locating them in this time, is very difficult. In the fall, they're in brood groups. They're scattered and evenly spaced all over the desert, anywhere there's water. But in the winter, when they group up, all the grouse go to one area. So you've got thousands and thousands of acres with no grouse on them, and one spot out there has a thousand grouse on it. So it's really difficult to find them. You can drive around for days and days and days and never see a track. But if you do see tracks, then you're getting in an area where you can locate them. But finding tracks is important. The way that I located the winter grouse for hunting them was from fixed winged aircraft. And I would go up after a snow and I would fly low over the desert. And the grouse will actually raise up out of the snow when you fly low in a plane. And uh, in Wyoming, there's a, a number of people that have their own planes, even in the town that I'm at. Alan Stout uh, was a local there who. For years and years, I actually hunted coyotes out of planes. And he would, uh, I would hire him to take me looking for sage grouse. And I found all of my wintering areas that I located from fixed winged aircraft. And I had to cover a lot of ground. And then once I located where they were and put them in on the GPS, I had to figure out how to get out to them and, and where the access was where I hunted them. So that's the difference between fall hunting sage grouse and winter hunting sage grouse.
0: Now, One of the things that is is synonymous with the name Steve Chindgren is the House of Grouse. Tell us about how you came to own it, what you did in the years before you owned it, and, of course, what it has meant to you and the huge number of guests that you've hosted over the years.
1: Okay. Uh, After camping on the Big Sandy for 14 years, uh, I met a couple gentlemen who I invited out there. One of them was David Kennedy and he was a falconer from Georgia we, around the campfire at, at the trailer on the big Sandy. They made the comment that if I could find a, a nice property there, that they would be interested in going in on it with me to purchase it. So, I uh, immediately was keeping an eye out and looking at what was for sale there and looking for land, thinking, you know, I was going to hold them to their their word. You know, they they said that to the wrong guy. I was going to go find someplace and contact them and see if they'd really do it. And I found uh, this property that I'd driven by many times when I was hawking, and it's an old log cabin that was built with timber cut from the Wind River Mountains logged on the pro- site. It was not a kit. It wasn't a prefab thing. It was a real full log cabin with all the interior walls made of logs. It does have a basement. I only own 40 acres around the House of Grouse, but you can walk on my property. I have access to, I mean, before you'd run into another building behind my house, you'd you'd go 100 miles. And so it was very, very isolated and open, and I have really the largest uh, hunting of probably any hunting lodge in the world. I have videos of the first walkthrough at the House of Grouse. I was actually with John Goodell, who is the curator of the archives in Boise, Idaho now. He was with me when we first walked through it, and he had a goshawk, and he was hunting cottontail rabbits in the yard while I was inspecting and videoing the house. And the house was vacant. There was no one in it. It was completely empty. And it, the doors weren't even locked on it. And so I went in and looked at it, and I go, this is perfect. This... I could really fix this up. So I sent the tapes out and David Kennedy said, yes, he would be happy to go in on it with me. We got it together. And uh, with David Kennedy's generosity, we began to remodel and fix the place up, tearing out all the old carpet and linoleum and tearing out anything that wasn't original uh, log cabins because some of the logs had been covered with paneling and things. It was kind of cheesy looking. So we tore it all right down to the log cabins and wanted to keep it rustic, yet yet beautiful and functional. And uh, we remodeled the place and uh, furnished it and uh, uh, made it a, a falconry paradise. And it's a little museum. And uh, so it's 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 wonderful. We've had the House of Grouse now for 21 years. People have come there from all over the world, from the Middle East and from Belgium and from England and from uh, Ireland and from South America, from Africa. Basically, it's been... it's Come to be known throughout the world as a falconry hunting lodge, and I'm very proud of that, and I love the place and I feel fortunate that David Kennedy uh, made it possible
0: So who owned the house before you did, and why were they selling a place like that?
1: The, the guy that built it had died, and the people that owned it got it through family. He ran a car dealership in Rock Springs, Wyoming. It, it isn't the most pleasant place to live year round if you have a wife. Uh, it's pretty cold, long winters up there. And a lot of people have to be born into that area to really stay. And they stayed for a few years and decided it was just too harsh. And they wanted to move somewhere. And I think they they moved their car dealership to another city somewhere and got out of there and put the place up for sale. And uh, so I was very fortunate to uh, to get it.
0: Yeah, that really is. When you consider the relative sparsity of opportunities that exist by virtue of the fact that there just aren't any places to live in, the fact that that one came up at the time that it came up was really just plain old luck for you.
1: It was awesome. It was just perfect timing.
0: Let's turn our attention to hawking once again. Any falconer that hawks late into the winter knows that winter-hardened quarry are pretty formidable. They've all become savvy to all the things that add days to those that they've already lived. And they're keenly aware of the things that end up limiting the number of days that they live. Can you just talk to us a little bit about hawking winter sagegrass?
1: Well, as I said, now that I'm, I'm older, I, it's not my favorite time to hunt them. I I like the dog work as much as I do flying them. I mean, the dog work is a big big part of it to me. And I, uh, in the winter, you don't use the dogs too much. You know, when you you could use them if you flush some grouse and you don't know where they are, you take the dog with you I always. Just like someone hunting prey chickens, they may have a dog, but they see the grouse for the, the chickens first, and then take the dog with them after they put the bird up. But I like actually locating the the grouse with the dog and like i say running in snow at first you know it can be okay when the snow is fresh but when the snow has been on the ground for a long time you've had blowing and drifting and you've had a a warm day that crusts it it becomes very difficult for the dogs to run big distances in that conditions because they cut their legs up and the thing about it is uh it's not practical to run dogs on winter grouse because they're in a giant flock somewhere out there And you might run your dog forever and not find anything. Where in the fall, they're in small groups, and you you locate them easily with the dog because they're evenly distributed around water sources. The wintertime is very harsh. You're often 30 to 50 miles away from the nearest paved road. The temperatures can drop to 20 below zero after sunset. I hunt in the evenings in the winter because if you hunt in the mornings in the winter, your bird will get killed by an eagle. Every eagle is hungry in the morning, and they have not eaten. And when they wake up and you're out there in the morning and they see a falcon going a tail chase on a grouse, they lock in behind it. And and sage grouse winter flights can go five miles, and I've often had them do that. That's a long ways. With old telemetry, often you you couldn't get right to them because it's really difficult to get a signal for that far away if the bird's on the ground. And so I lost a lot of birds to eagles hunting winter grouse. And it's devastating when you put that much work into a bird and you have a bird that's really, really good. And it's always the good ones that won't quit. And they're the ones that are going to get killed. If your falcon really is confident in its ability, it will tail chase them.
0: You've now mentioned golden eagles, and I know you've lost a lot of birds. I think it's nine. And there are many places where. Snowy owls and great horned owls are among the most dangerous to the falcons that we have that are maybe on downed quarry. But nothing compares to a golden eagle in terms of its sheer ability to capture and kill anything from gray partridge and muskrats to antelope. You've had a lot of experiences flying with golden eagles. Tell us how you go about trying to minimize lethal encounters with them.
1: Well, I, I have lost uh, nine birds to golden eagles and one bird to a horned owl. So I've lost 10 birds to predators, but nine of them to golden eagles. And the the way that I learned uh, all nine of those uh, where my birds were killed by eagles were in the morning, hunting in the morning. I prefer hunting in the morning. I like hunting early in the morning, but when winter comes, that's uh, basically suicide to fly your falcons early. So what I do in the winter is you have to go out You leave. I leave the house of grouse about noon I go out and I spend time in the desert looking for tracks using binoculars, looking for grouse the way I don't like to look for them, not using the dogs, just basically scouting the desert trying to find some grouse or bumping some and seeing them land and marking where they are Once I have a group of grouse located then I wait and I won't fly them until 30 minutes before sunset. Because at this time, all the eagles have fed for the day. They've had a meal and they're off to roost and they're not gonna be hunting. So it's much, much safer to fly in the evenings in the winter. Uh, in the fall, we don't have a problem with eagles because in the fall, there's hunting seasons going on. There's abundant food and quarry. There's not snow on the ground, which make it so easy to spot a falcon chasing a grouse a long distance grouse don't fly as far and when hunting seasons are on the hunters shoot a large game and then they gut them and leave the gut piles. Any experienced eagle knows when a, a, a gunshot goes off that it's probably shot something and they feed on those gut piles and so they're well fed in the fall but in the winter it's harsh it's cold it's bleak and the eagles are desperate and when they see another predator make a kill they're going to go for it every
0: time that concludes part one of my conversation with steve chindren tune in next week to hear steve compare and contrast the various species of falcon that he has flown on sage grass and why he believes that the tiercell ju peregrine hybrid is the ultimate sage grass hawk he also explains how he conditions his birds to hunt sage grass and he tells us about his favorite falcons